Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hi guys, Santosh here, Peds Infectious Disease Doc and Researcher. Oh boy, what a week. <laughs> what, a, what a fortnight. What a month. <laughs> what a half What a year. year. <laughs> what a year. I've ceased using the phrase, it can't get worse. <laughs> you know, the, the, oh, well, it can't, any, you know, the upside is it can't possibly get worse than this. Hit rock bottom, here's a shovel. Yeah, yeah, it was. No, uh, no. So some of you may have noticed that last week there was no episode, not even a rerun. And you may have been wondering, why not, Dr. J? What's going on? And you know what, guys? Between the country burning down around us, yeah. the protests, the fact that I am house training a remarkably temper tantrum but adorable little puppy, I just didn't have it in me. But I promise it won't happen again. Until, I don't know, there's some super volcano eruption or blood monkeys <laughs> or whatever this month brings us. Yeah, uh, well, I'll, I'll tell you that, you know, it was a scary time for us in public health and infectious diseases. Um, we're, we here at Travel Media and Travel Medicine Podcast, we're super um, proud and, you know, a hundred percent were behind those people protesting racism. Um, but it's scary to have that many people congregating in one place in the midst of a pandemic that scared me. Um, this, this is a real thing on the one hand, I'm like, everybody stay home because we don't want you to get sick. And on the other, it's like, uh, you know, black lives matter. And to see all these people coming out and literally risking their lives for justice is, is heartwarming and intimidating at the same time 
from an infectious standpoint. Uh, (laughs) So anybody who's out there, be safe, wear your mask, get, you know, drink water, be an ally, donate, do whatever you can because distance. If you can, I've seen really amazing protests where people were like, there was like a little three foot by three foot square around everybody. If, if it's possible to still, you know, you can pack the street, but you know, it's like synchronized you, swimming. We're getting to Olympic level protesting. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. folks, in an effort to just give us all a little bit of a break, uh, I figured, you know, even though we skipped one, it's still an alternate week. And that means it's time for our first in a long time of a not exclusively pandemic journal club. Yay! <laughs> this week, the theme is going to focus on biohacking the blood. All four of our stories from this journal club, or at least three of them and a half, deal with things going on in the blood, and only one of them even mentions the pandemic. So we'll save it till the end because I know you're desperate for updates, but there's so much else going on. So let's begin with the fact that we now can make synthetic red blood cells that are better than the original, new and improved. <laughs> this was so cool, Josh, when you sent this over. Uh, and it was in ACS Nano, which is a great journal. Uh, I absolutely loved reading about it. And the, um, the methods that they used here to making these red blood cells, well, so they're called RBCs, like red blood cells. But they're rebuilt red blood cells, though, so there are RBCs. <laughs> now, let me just, I'm going to head off one argument I know a few of you are thinking. But Josh, aren't you terrified of robots and artificial intelligence? And the yeah. answer is absolutely. But <laughs> qualifier, I am all for biological cyborgs. When we combine ourselves with robots, that's fine. When you allow <laughs> robots to have their own motivations in society. Mm -mm -mm. So (laughs) scientists have tried to develop synthetic red blood cells that can mimic all the properties of natural ones, the ability to flex through small vessels, to transport and hold oxygen, and to circulate in the body for a long time. But so far, most of the ones they've created can only do one or maybe two at best. But in ACS Nano, not only have they made red blood cells that have all of those abilities, but a few extras like cargo transport and therapeutic drug carrying. Ooh, this, yeah. So, and, and to be very, very fair, hemoglobin can bind a number of things. And there are quite a few proteins in red blood cells that can bind and carry other, you know, like small molecules. But this is, they, they put like extra nanoparticles in there or something. And, this is all small scale, right? It's very, uh, it's new. And they, they, the scientists created this platform as a proof of concept, but man, oh man, is it so neat. So you could deliver these Josh and say, oh my gosh, you know, we don't have enough red blood cells for this patient. So we'll give them the RRBCs, the, the rebuilt ones. And by the way, you know, they're also septic. So we'll also load those with antibiotics on board. Like you could get a blood transfusion and an antibiotic at the same time with only one IV. And that's amazing, especially if somebody is septic or has a disease like toxic shock or any of those where they're hemorrhaging and you're losing pressure. Like the the applications are 
almost limitless. But let's talk a little bit about how they did it and what these synthetic red cells actually look like. So the first thing they did is they got some donated red blood cells, and then they coated them with a very thin layer of silica. Um, so kind of like they're creating a mold, like if you've ever dipped your hand in hot wax at the Ren Fair or whatever they <laughs> did it, uh, that's what they did. They took real blood cells and they coated them with something to make a little model around it. Then they layered alternating positively and negatively charged polymers over these silica RBCs and then etched away the silica producing replicas. So they they essentially did all these things you see in Hollywood special effects in a lab at the level of a blood cell. And the last step was coating the surface of these new replicated cells with natural membranes from red blood cells. So this gave them artificial cells that were similar in size, shape, charge, and surface proteins that were flexible enough to squeeze through capillaries without losing their shape. And then they tested them on mice, and they lasted for over 48 hours with no toxicity. That is amazing. <laughs> this is so cool. And I bet some of you guys are thinking about, oh, you know, we've talked about artificial blood in the past. Um, Josh, I know you and I, we've covered everything from using like coconut water as mm -hmm. a substitute for fluids like intravenous coconut water, all the way to uh, these beautiful rebuilt plasmas that you can give. But that special component, the red blood cell, which is the oxygen-carrying cell, uh, without this, it doesn't matter how much circulation you have. If you can't deliver uh, oxygen to your tissues, you can have as much fluid as you want, but you're still toast. So this is so, so neat because it's a cell essentially without an actual cell. And you can do this with red cells because red cells intrinsically are not um, alive in the way that we usually think of. They don't have DNA. Um, a mature red blood cell doesn't need to replicate or divide um, and create new cells. It's really just a membrane. And then it's, it's a sac full of a few proteins uh, the antigens on top, and then a chunk of hemoglobin so that you can carry oxygen. There you go. A sack of proteins around a chunk of hemoglobin. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. so this sack of proteins was loaded up with either a chunk of hemoglobin, mm -hmm. a chunk of anti-cancer drug, a toxin sensor, or just some magnetic nanoparticles to demonstrate that they could carry cargos like little red blood minivans. <laughs> I love it. Um, now there's a few of the next step studies they're going to work on now that they've created this proof of concept is to have these new synthetic RBCs act as decoys for a bacterial toxin. So the toxin would attach to essentially non-functional blood cells right off the bat, leaving your blood cells free to go about their day. Um, and future studies will also explore cancer therapy and toxin biosensing. Imagine walking into, say, a nuclear reactor that had a leak somewhere, and your blood would actually be able to sense that toxin and have some kind of effect. Essentially, this is the first step to engineering a spidey sense, you guys. <laughs> Getting away from the crazy stuff, Josh. <laughs> More important. Am I, but am I wrong? Oh, fine. Yeah, you're... 
you're basically taking sensors and putting putting them right in your body. Yes. Now I don't know, Josh, how they would necessarily feed back to the like the body or the brain to be able to like you know because the the tiny little sensors could sense something, but then it would have to send a signal somewhere to to let you know that oh my god I've sensed radiation or I've sensed carbon monoxide um, you know so you'd need a, a you'd need a readout or something like a implanted thing on your wrist or something you could tell it to like send a specific uh, endorphin to your brain so that like if there was too much carbon monoxide you could be like I don't know you could be hungry no that would be bad I mean or they could just <laughs> set it up so it if if they can insert nanoparticles they could just put a little wi-fi transmitter in there and it, you could look at your apple watch <laughs> and it could register no i mean i'm serious no, no, though. It's like, true. It's, yeah you're right you're right if, if you like can if it, it could just send a small wi-fi signal you don't have to have a device implanted in your body you can send it to your phone when you're it's like hey your blood has reached levels or the cells are saturated with these levels you should consider removing yourself just like the uh, Geiger counters or radiation detectors. Now our cell phones and smartwatches could potentially, but I mean, these are all still a long way off. However, the fact that we have now created entirely synthetic blood, not just substitutes that rely on, you know, aspects of it, but synthetic blood that can do more than the existing red blood cells is pretty exciting. Yeah. I'm, I'm psyched. The one thing that you're talking about where you're setting up a decoy for an infection, like imagine you have someone with malaria and you just sent out a bunch of these synthetic red cells and the malaria went in and they're like, oh, red blood cells, we can replicate in here. And then it's like, nope. Let's move on to our next story. Now that we're you know, sending blood cells in to decoy infections, what advancements are we making on the antibiotic front? Because remember, we're we've talked about the fact that we're rapidly approaching a post-antibiotic world where simply nothing works because everything's resistant. Well, one team at Princeton wasn't satisfied with that, and they developed what they call a poison arrow to defeat antibiotic-resistant bacteria through a really interesting method. Not only does it attack from the outside of the cell, but can also simultaneously attack from within the infectious cell. This was reported in the journal, surprise, surprise, Cell, that they found a compound <laughs> 79797 that can simultaneously <laughs> puncture bacterial walls I'm and sorry. destroy folate within their cells. <laughs> how how angry were you, Josh, when you said <laughs> when you saw that, you know, it was called SCH79797 that you were like, what? <laughs> How how the like the the naming possibilities were just awesome. I mean, they could have even gone with poison arrow, but they chose repeating digits, and that at least <laughs> plays into my sense of symmetry. So, not as angry as you might have thought. If they'd called it like seven nine six four two, furious yeah. seven nine seven nine seven, I could have just sat there saying it all day. S C H seven nine seven nine seven nine. It sounds like one of the called two 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 twenty two twenty two. Like. <laughs> It sounds I like one of those so, yeah. television. It sounds like instead of a bacterial compound, it's a television lawyer. Want to fight that infection? Call SCH79797. <laughs> um, right, but, right. I, but I digress. So as we've covered before, 
And, you know, hopefully I'm not emitting too much detail to drive our infectious disease doc into a rage. <laughs> Bacterial infections come in two flavors, gram positive and gram negative. And we've talked about the scientist who named them, Alexander Graham. Uh, gram negative bacteria have this protective outer layer, like a antibiotic proof vest that shrugs most things off. And there have been no new gram negative antibiotics in over 30 years. Um, well, yeah, there, there have been kind of twists on the same concept, right? So we've had these things called cephalosporin, um, the favorite of a lot of ED docs, right? Rocephin, ceftriaxone. And then they've basically just taken that same molecule and tweaked it a little and tweaked it a little. Um, one new class recently, you know, carbapenems, maybe in the past like 30 years, but you're absolutely right, Josh. It's uh, everything is kind of old. So this antibiotic not only targets gram positives and gram negatives, which is something a couple different antibiotics do, but it specifically does it by a two-fold attack, and that's what makes it unique. It's not just puncturing bacterial wall. It's also destroying the folate. So let's, let's talk a little bit about this. Most antibiotics, bacteria evolve quickly to resist them because they only attack with one thing, but this antibiotic gives two attacks at the same time. That's the amazing. And this is what made me even happier. With even extraordinary effort, the Princeton team was unable to generate any resistance to this compound. So they called the compound's derivatives irresistant. <laughs> that's, that's fantastic naming right there. It's an irresistant <laughs> antibiotic. You cannot create resistance. It's irresistible, irresistant. <laughs> yeah. Um, so here's some of the nerdy talk. Um, cell wall active antibiotics broadly sit under uh, beta lactams under that kind of canopy. So penicillin, Josh, is the major one, right? And then um, cephalosporins are a derivative of uh, penicillins, or they're kind of like a, a neighbor to penicillins. And these damage that uh, cell wall, the, the or not the cell wall, sorry, the outer membrane proteins. And they, they, they damage, uh, you know, those those protective uh, layers uh, that actually our cells don't have, which is why antibiotics by and large don't hurt us. Then you, you've got beta-lactams that poke holes in the cell wall, the bacterial cell wall. And then you've got uh, like Bactrim, trimethoprim sulfa, or some people uh, will call it cotrimoxazole. That is a poison to the folate synthesis pathway that bacteria have. And those are two separate medications. And, you know, you, you can't really, you don't really give one with the other. Usually there's really no utility to give both of them. But you do know that if you give one antibiotic, if you give a cephalosporin enough, you're going to breed bacteria that are resistant to those. If you give Bactrim or trimethoprim sulfa long enough, you're going to get mutations in the folate synthesis proteins, and then you won't be able to use that drug anymore. But dude, if you attack both at the same time, it's like chaos to the bacteria. They're just going to... And then, you know, they're like, ah, oh, get, get off of me, you whole poker things. But then on the inside, they're still getting poisoned. But there's a catch. Uh-oh. Because since 
irresistant since seven nine seven nine seven is irresistible. <laughs> sure. Most antibiotics involve finding a molecule that can kill bacteria, breeding several generations until the bacteria do manage to have resistance to it, then looking at how that resistance operates and reverse engineering how the molecule works. Well, if you can't create resistance, how do you reverse engineer what it's doing? Um, and that, so the team had two, ta- two technical challenges, trying to prove a negative that nothing can resist it, and then figuring out how it works. So essentially, the scientists just brute forced it. Uh, and you can explain what, what it means to serially passage an antibiotic. But uh, since bacteria only take about 20 minutes per generation, the germs had millions of chances to evolve resistance, but didn't. So they checked it against multiple antibiotics. And because you can't prove a negative, they use phrase like undetectably low resistance frequencies. Yeah, I. The, it's kind of neat when you find something like this because a just like you said, you're testing the molecule, but then you're encountering this new biological problem, and you have to find a way to get around it. So serially passaging is not you know like Fruit Loops and then Golden Grams or something like that. Although that sounds kind of interesting, like if you exposed bacteria to different cereals. That would be weird. Mm. <laughs> uh, cereal- Can't get enough of that gonorrhea. <laughs> it's good that you said that. Yeah, they tested this on gonorrhea. They actually they, they used this medication in the lab uh, to prove that it worked. They, they treated mouse gonorrhea. <laughs> well, not just any mouse gonorrhea. They got a sample out of the vaults of the World Health Organization of the most resistant strain of gonorrhea. Yeah. And the antibiotic, 79797, uh-huh. still killed it. Yeah, <laughs> they did. So... See, <laughs> there's just the little mice, and then uh, it's like, oh, honey, I think I caught something. <laughs> well, go to the scientist, I guess. You know? And then sad little, and then you got to be like, oh, who did he sleep around with? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just thinking of tiny little slutty mice. So the original, the original 79797 did kill both human and bacterial cells at similar levels, meaning not an ideal thing if it's going to kill you right along with the bacteria. But the derivative irresistant 16 fixed that. It's about a thousand times more potent against bacteria than human cells, which means it's a very promising antibiotic. And that was the one. Irresistance 16 infected this vault dugout strain of mouse gonorrhea. Nice. And uh, yeah, getting back to the original question, I'm sorry, I got carried away with mouse gonorrhea. The serial passaging is where you take bacteria and you put them in a nutrient broth so that they can eat, you know, some sugar and protein and then multiply and and they can grow to basically as much as they'll fill the flask. And then you take a little bit of that and you put it into a new flask. And so that's uh, in vitro cereal passaging. In vivo is where you infect something like a mouse and then they get you know, bacteremic, they get sick, and then you pass it on to, you know, you take some of that bacteria out of that mouse and you pass it into the next mouse, usually by injection. Um, but in this case, um, Josh, we can use serial passaging of bacteria. For instance, if I have a little resistance marker and I want to amplify a particular gene, 
I can hook up the resistance marker with the gene and then poison the rest of the bacteria with like ampicillin in the flask so that the, re- the, the susceptible bacteria die and the ones with the resistance marker and the gene that I want stay alive and they circulate. Well, in this case, Josh, they were, they tried to like, they poisoned the bacteria with the uh, irresistible antibiotic, the irresistant antibiotic. Then they tried to recover some of that bacteria to move to the next flask. And then they were like, we can't. You know, mm-hmm. we, we're just, we're trying to like expose this over and over. And essentially, you know, they're supposed to gain new mutations every time they divide. And, you know, the, the thought is that, oh, you'll get a mutant bacteria that will have resistance to something. And they were trying to passage and passage and passage, and they couldn't pull out any resistance bacteria. Usually I can get it out of like a couple of passages, two or three and then you're done. These guys couldn't get resistance in, damn, 25 days of passaging. So for all you science nerds out there, that's hugely significant. For most other people, just accept our word for it. That's a lot of effort. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a lot of effort they, to they, get zero payoff, which yeah, was the payoff. Which was the payoff. They sat there for a month, people, a month, just going like, okay, some bacteria, move it in here, add the antibiotic, and just watch it. Like that's a full month of quarantine doing nothing but just pouring liquids from one test tube into another. <laughs> and at the end of it, nothing's happened. <laughs> and that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. It's so, a good thing. <laughs> here's so, to the folk at Princeton, the Gitai Lab. Um, guys, please go look at the link. Um, with everything else going on, um, there is a, a beautiful uh, team picture, and the uh, one of the lead scientists is an African American dude. This is an audio medium, as you are so fond of reminding me. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least this time I told people to actually go to the link. I'm not trying to like. Fair. <laughs> I'm not hey trying guys, to. See hey guys, look at this. <laughs> oh my God, Josh, that's amazing. <laughs> that's, that might so be the cool. coolest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> sorry yeah it took me years to learn how to do it but now i can do it even while talking so uh, let's move on to our next story now yeah. i know you're all aching for at least a little bit of an update on the pandemic what what you weren't well too bad i'm gonna give you one anyway um and it does involve a theory that was both fascinating for its comprehensiveness and really intimidating in terms of its infectious thing. And it's that coronavirus may be a blood vessel disease that is transmitted through the respiratory system. And that would explain most of the symptoms that we've really started to see that aren't traditionally associated with lung infections. Yeah, and uh, this was written by uh, Dana G. Smith. It is on the medium. It's a um, it's an opinion piece. There's a good amount of evidence that um, the the writer is going through. Without getting insanely technical, Josh, after you present some of the details, I'm happy to break down and to present a a little bit of a counter argument. Um, I, I like the way she's going, but um, I, I want to present maybe a different perspective. Yeah, so this this is not specifically a study so much as it is somebody putting together, connecting the dots on the different pieces of data. So one of the biggest issues we've seen that has made this disease so dangerous to younger people 
um, you know, meaning folks around our age of like 20s to 40s, as opposed to just the elderly ones like that, is that blood clots and strokes uh, as a result of blood clots have been one of the really mysterious symptoms due to COVID-19. And we thought when the fur disease first happened, it was just a pneumonia, right? You remember all the, it's just as, you know, it's just another form of the flu. Well, the flu doesn't cause blood clots. The flu doesn't cause strokes. Then it was COVID toes, painful red or purple digits. And how is a lung disease giving you a weird toe? So what do all these symptoms have in common? An impairment in blood circulation. And roughly 40% of deaths from COVID have been related to cardiovascular complications. Now, this isn't people who also have many pre-existing conditions. So there's a little bit of fudging of the details there, but there's enough going on that the disease starts to look more like a vascular infection more than purely respiratory. So we know that it can cause blood clots, but how is it infecting blood vessels? The, this was the perspective that um, this uh, the science writer, uh, Dana G. Smith, um, was going through and saying, you know, perhaps there is an active infection of the vasculature, uh, which is causing this type of inflammation and subsequently, you know, DVTs, deep venous thromboses, which uh, cut off the return circulation from the legs, um, which then, you know, they can break off and go to other parts of your body and cause... Um, arterial clots if it crosses over. Um, likewise, you know, cl- uh, inflammation of the arteries that feed the brain, the carotids, and the smaller arteries, and therefore causing strokes. I'll give you guys another perspective. There has been a, uh, a lot of press recently about this disease called PIMS in pediatrics, which is a form of um, high inflammation that we're seeing as a consequence of, you know, probably, or at least it's, it's temporally associated with uh, SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19. What, what seems to be happening, because uh, honestly, Josh, in everything that we've done when we've done autopsy studies and we've actually dissected out the blood vessels and tried to find the virus, it's not there. It seems to be more that the viral particles are acting like what we call super antigens. You know, they're actually setting off the immune system so hard that the we go into these storms. And these storms cause ravaging of blood vessels. And in PIMS, uh, the pediatric uh, inflammatory multisystem syndrome um, that we're seeing, Often when they do an echocardiogram of the heart in the acute phase, these kids have aneurysms or enlargement of the coronary arteries, the arteries that actually feed the heart muscle. And when they get better, when they leave the ICU and they get a repeat echocardiogram, that inflammation is gone. So uh, it it really looks like here there's a a, a storm of inflammation, not because the the virus is actually attacking, but because it's setting off our inflammatory pathways to a point where our own immune system is destroying our body and specifically going after um, particular tissues that are unique to our blood vessels. And that's why we're getting these clotting and vascular phenomenon. Now, counterpoint to your counterpoint, all right. Although very well phrased, yeah. Um, is we have talked a little bit before about the cytokine storm, and that certainly is involved. But 
One of the things that makes SARS-CoV-2 unique is that it's thought to enter the body through ACE2 receptors. That's why early on we were worried about, is it safe to give ACE inhibitors like lisinopril or captopril, drugs that work on these receptors that both line the respiratory tract in the nose and throat, but the blood vessels are also rich in the ACE2 receptors. So this theory proposes that it, it gets into the lungs the destruction of the lung tissue breaks open some blood vessels, then it infects endothelial cells, creates a local immune response that pims or cytokine storm and inflames it. Mm-hmm. But how does it circulate? You know, H1N1 didn't do this, nor did SARS classic. Um, <laughs> and or, now, or MERS or, you know, a couple of the yeah. other related coronaviruses. Yeah. Now, Diseases like Ebola or dengue, the hemorrhagic fevers can certainly infect endothelial cells, but they don't get in through the lungs. So this professor of microbiology, Ben-Hur Lee, oh my gosh, his name is Ben-Hur, Ben-Hur Lee at Mount Sinai uh, draws the distinction that although both classic SARS and SARS-CoV-2 dock onto cells through the ACE2 receptors, you need a second protein to crack open that viral egg so the material can get into the cell. The original protein in the SARS virus only is present in lung tissue, but the protein that cracks open SARS-CoV-2 is present in all cells, especially in endothelial cells. And that could explain some of the weird symptoms. So imagine you have a clot like just a normal plaque in your heart that may put you at some risk for heart disease, but ordinarily would be fine. However, you have damage to these endothelial cells, you get inflammation in the blood vessels, you get you know this cytokine storm, and any plaque that's accumulated can now rupture, causing a heart attack right. or formation of a clot. Or in people who you know, go into that cytokine storm and have AFib, they can throw a clot into the brain and get a stroke or a clot into the lungs and get a pulmonary embolism. So all this blood vessel damage could also explain why people with pre-existing conditions like high blood pressure, cholesterol, diabetes, and heart disease have ended up being at much higher risk for severe complications from a virus that really we thought just originally infected the lungs. So this is not by any means proven. No experiments have been done, as we said, However, the data does tie together to make a very nice, convincing argument, and you can kind of read more in depth about it. For all we know, I could just be blowing smoke, and it may still be the cytokine storm or the PIMS model, but we are getting much more detailed, accurate models of the pandemic, and every day we're getting that much closer to figuring out how to beat this thing. Yeah, I I think right now, you're right, more ideas are better. And it is really a good idea to, you know, kind of venture a little bit outside of the box when, you know, putting forth these hypotheses. Uh, I have a feeling just from everything that I've seen that when we put this to the test, we're probably not going to find direct infection uh, commonly to blood vessels or or outside of the respiratory system. And we're going to find more immune activation and inflammation than we than we think, um, including activation of the coagulation cascade, the, the part that actually, you know, helps us clot. But I think it's it's worthwhile to look for. And, you know, we do have antibodies and um and other ways, PCR for instance, to actually look for the presence of the actual virus in 
structures in other part of the body. Um, sadly, using autopsy studies, perhaps um, using things like explants as well from, you know, when, when people survive uh, an arterial crisis and, and they can actually take it out and look at it under the microscope. Yeah. So I, I just, that was probably my favorite article out of all these. And I've been sitting on it for a little while, waiting to see if it would be disproved, proved, what direction it would go. And I have to tell you, I, I know you're not as sold on this idea, but for the moment, I'm convinced that this has a much more interesting approach that it's both a vascular and a respiratory if not infection, that it's a respiratory infection with a lot of vascular aspects due to this endothelial cell. Uh, the data that I've seen has me pretty convinced that the treatment is going to lead down that road to protect against some of the more serious non-respiratory things we've been seeing. I, I, I'm with you right now. You know, this virus, as far as we're concerned, is literally seven or eight months old it's a newbie and we're learning all about it. I think it's a really, really good idea to explore all of these paths. And, you know, I, I've eaten my words before when it's come to these, but um, as the sooner we can start testing these hypotheses, the better. Yeah. So moving on to our, our last story, it's a short journal club, but you know, sometimes they are. Do you remember the Fitbit craze? Yeah, I think I still have one in a drawer somewhere. It set off this whole like count your steps thing, which people are still doing just with other devices. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, so essentially Fitbit pioneered this kind of idea of pedometers. So it didn't, <laughs> it didn't pioneer. It, it but didn't, yeah, like analog pedometers were around for a billion years before <laughs> these things came along. They just but, made it like uh, fancy. Yeah, it made it fancy enough that a lot of people started to do them. But then once Apple Watch and other things sort of took over, Fitbit really as a device that could just measure your steps and maybe your pulse kind of became obsolete and needed to find something new to do with their funds and their factories. And they decided to make ventilators. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think this is really smart. You know, they've got uh, electronics expertise. They've got biometric tracking expertise. Um, the ventilator itself is really, you know, it's it's just a mechanical bellows that you have to calibrate properly. So I, I think it was a really smart, like, business decision. And the biggest thing, Josh, is that they are experts in miniaturization, right? Like taking something that where you need a lot of electronics to count these steps with accelerometers and stuff, and then shrinking them down to the size of a bracelet. So let's talk about their shrinky-dink expansion. Uh, Fitbit's emergency ventilator alternative has now been granted green lights by the FDA, so it can go ahead and start making it. And their flow ventilator is a really simple design in response to this nationwide shortage of ventilators. And it uses mechanical arms to just squeeze a bag valve mask similar to what we use in ambulances and emergency rooms. So it is not quite the same as the traditional ventilator, but it's got like tiny little T-Rex arms that just <laughs> squeeze a mask. I mean, okay, I can't stand by that. That's yeah. how I picture it. No, no. But <laughs> so uh, you actually, you sent us a beautiful uh, the uh, photo in the Fierce Biotech. Um, it, it, it basically, ha you know, like... Um, you know, like if you put your hands together like a V at the base of the wrist and then you squeeze like that, like you're clapping. 
Like it's got that little V shape where you'd put the, the, the ball, the, um, the bag in the middle of that so that they go squeeze like that. Yeah. So those little arms will regularly squeeze a bag valve mask, which is exactly how we kind of ventilate people during a code blue or a rapid response. But Fitbit's device not only can do the bag valve mask, which can be done by human hands, although not for that length of time, but they can control air delivery by volume or pressure. And it even includes an assist control feature that supports breaths triggered by the patient. And that's something we see on traditional ICU ventilators. So they really have scaled up and taken, you know, the idea of fitness tracking and gone running with it in just an amazing way. Pun intended. All puns are intended. I like, I really, really like it. It's supposed to be for a limited time, right? You you can't hook someone up to this for days and days the way you that you can a, a traditional ventilator because it doesn't have the the capacity to have like a big bellows that's stable enough to do, you know, that many breaths for that long. But essentially they said, you know, hey, we can pack all the sensors in there that a ventilator needs in order to sense that a person's taking a breath so you can you can time the breathing with the patient instead of, you know, breathing, you know, pushing air in when they're, when the patient's trying to breathe out, that's a bad thing. You don't want to do that. So they, they put that kind of a sensor and all of the other timers for breathing rate and pressure sensing and all that kind of thing. But then they took out the actual, you know, the blower <laughs> they said, you know, hey, you know, you guys pop in whatever blower you want and we'll be able to run it. And that took a lot of the um, the parts out of the machine and made, they, they could make it smaller. But we do have to provide a bag every time. You yeah. know, but I mean, uh, the, the bag is fine. So compared to emergency alternatives that just provide breaths at a fixed rate per minute, this would come in at a lower price point compared to more durable hospital ventilators that are designed to run constantly with finer controls, but can still add heat and humidity. And again, production efforts could can be ramped up fast and it will serve as a better, cheaper alternative to some of the things that are being used when we don't have ventilators available. And hopefully that won't be an issue again. But this is, you know, when the next wave comes, and it will, folks. So yep. mm-hmm. you know, gear up for another winter wave. Um, but then when the next wave comes, this is really going to help ease the load. And the FDA also gave emergency authorization to a second ventilator from NASA, the Vital Device, Ventilator Intervention Technology Accessible Locally. See, somebody <laughs> knows how to name it things. It's NASA. NASA is very good at this stuff. Um, as of, for instance, way back when... When they sent, uh, you know, like an exercise thing up to the ISS, uh, they did a naming challenge and Stephen Colbert, then of the Colbert Report, demanded that the device be named after him. And it was, (laughs) and they actually figured out an acronym for a treadmill that fit into the word Colbert. Well, both the NASA Vital Device and the Fitbit Ventilator have been designed to be assembled from components that are outside traditional medical device supply chain. So it will not impact any manufacturing of current hospital ventilators and will provide a additional supplementary boost to our desperately needed equipment when the next wave comes. So, you know, 
a little pandemic related, but we finally are starting to give some more positive things. So uh, that's it for this week's Journal Club, you guys. I had non-COVID stories to talk about. Yeah. I was very excited. <laughs> yeah, we did. Uh, we'll follow it up when we can, um, you know, with the with the new COVID stuff. Uh, I know a lot of people, you know, you're worried about hydroxychloroquine. The short answer is don't use it for COVID <laughs> for right now. Um, I know a lot of you guys are thinking about, um, you know, what the next steps are and everything. And we'll, we'll do our very, very best to, to keep up with you. But Josh, I, I want to thank you. Uh, I know you worked really hard to put this uh, group together of stories that were as non-COVID as possible. And it was wonderful to learn something new and a relief to get away from COVID. Just, I needed a break. We <laughs> all needed a break, folks. Yeah. So next week, we're going to give you that break. We'll be back with some more medical history, knowledge, all that fun stuff and immaturity that you've grown to know and love from us. <laughs> um, but until then, that's it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to ask them or support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links to sources used to research this week's episode. We've got the Twitter, the Instagram, the Facebook. We're all over the social media, and we're no longer blacked out, but we are lazy. Yeah. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. The show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. And until we can all travel again, wash your hands, wear a mask, keep your distance from others, but don't let that mean you're distanced from others. Stay safe out there <laughs> and have a good day, you guys. Bye, guys. Thank you for listening. Who you got back in watering plants? S-I-M-P, squirrels in our pants. How can I qualify for government grants? S-I-M-P, squirrels in our pants. Hypnotize me, put me in a trance. S-I-M-P, squirrels in our pants. Got an aunt, got an aunt Florence living in France. She can't see the squirrels in my pants. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.